When Mahatma Gandhi was dying, one of his relatives came to him and asked, Babaki, you have been looking for God all your life. Looking for God all your life. Have you found him yet? No, was the reply. I'm still looking. Commenting on that story, Michael Green, in his book, observes, The humility, the earnestness, the sheer goodness of a great teacher like Gandhi shine through a a remark like that. But it stands in the most stark contrast with Jesus' claim. No one knows the Father except the Son. It's only in Jesus Christ that we find God. Notice how the author of Hebrews begins. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 as we begin our study here in this great epistle. He begins Hebrews 1.1, God. God. God is not silent, you see. He is there and he is not silent, to use the words of Francis Schaeffer many years ago. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Who is the greatest prophet of God? The, the mouthpiece of God. He is Jesus Christ, God's Son. So God talked conclusively to us through his Son. Think of our space-time world as a giant box, if you will. We live inside that box. And we cannot get outside that space-time box to understand any other dimension other than the one in which we live. God lives outside that box. So the only way to know God is for God to enter the box and reveal himself to us. We call that Revelation, when God enters that box. God reveals himself by entering our space-time box, and God talks to us. Now, God had talked to humans over many years, and in many, many different ways, through prophets, through dreams, through revelations. There are 39 Old Testament books. God revealed himself in visions, dreams, miracles, words, both written and spoken. The point is that God talked in pieces to humans over those years. All of those pieces of revelation, Hebrews says, come to completion in Jesus Christ, God's Son. God progressively revealed pieces of information about himself until he finally sent his son into the box so that we could see and feel and hear what God was all about, what God wanted us to know about himself. So God talked conclusively. God talked definitively to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Actually, The in is very important. We often say God talks to us through the Son. But in fact, God talked to us in Son. In who the Son is. How He functioned. His works, not His words. His personality. How He lived. 
not just what he said. God's revelation came in the person and works of his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God in human form. So who is the greatest prophet? The world's religions make many claims, but Jesus Christ is the world's greatest prophet. Who is Jesus then? Well, the author of Hebrews, having introduced that whole subject, then goes on to give us a six-fold description of who Jesus Christ is. There are six portraits of Jesus in these opening verses of Hebrews. Portrait number one, Jesus is the heir of everything. God talked to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now we understand what an heir is. An heir is someone who inherits what another owns. God appointed Jesus as his heir. The word appointed is a Greek word that means to assign him as God's heir. And the text goes on to tell us what the son inherits. He was assigned as God's heir and he inherits what? Everything. Jesus inherits all things. Everything that God owns. God is the subject of this sentence. God owns everything. Now Jesus inherits. He's assigned the inheritance of everything. Now, if the Son inherits everything God owns, then the Son owns everything God owns by His inheritance, right? And if the Son owns everything that God owns, then the Son is God. Jesus Christ inherits, He's the heir of everything. The Son inherits the universe, and the Son inherits all people who live in the universe the thought is drawn from Old Test- the Old Testament where in Psalm 2.8, which the, that the author of Hebrews will use again as we move along here in our study. But in Psalm 2.8, God is talking, and God is talking to His anointed one, the Messiah, in Psalm 2. And, he, and God says, Ask of me, to the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession." So Jesus inherits all the nations of this world as his possession. He will own us all. This is his. The author of Hebrews develops that idea more fully in chapter 2 where he notes that we don't see this ownership right now. It's not visible to us. It's not always obvious to us that God owns everything that Jesus owns everything. But we will see it, he says in chapter 2, in the age to come. All peoples will bow before the inheritor of all things. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 tells us that God has bestowed on Jesus a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's where it's all going. Jesus inherits everything. All right, the author of Hebrews then goes on to develop his argument. Jesus inherits everything because Jesus created everything. Second portrait, Jesus is the creator of the universe. God talked to us in His Son, through whom also he made the worlds. 
The word translated worlds literally means ages. Some of the translators use the word ages. God created the ages. Now in Greek philosophy, this word came to mean the universe from beginning to end. God created the ages or the generations that this universe has gone through, which means that God created the entire space-time world with all who have ever lived from the beginning of time to the end of time. God made the material world. God made the worlds or ages that this universe has passed through in the course of time. The word for made is the word from which we get our English word poem. So God created everything like a poet creates a poem. God authored all that exists. God made the box in which we live. God made the space-time world that we inhabit. God made the box and he put a lid on it. And you and I can't get out of that box. We don't understand any other dimension but that box. As hard as we try, it's a closed system. The only way out of the box is through God who enters the box and leads us out of that box. Now, God made this box through the agency of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus then actually created the box in which we live, and Jesus did it through the power of God. John, in John chapter 1 and verse 3, writes about Jesus and says, All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Absolutely nothing exists that Jesus didn't create. He is the creator of all things. Think about uh, the vastness of our universe. By Him and through Him and for Him, everything exists. He is the creator of it all. Our sun is a small star by comparison with other stars, but we could put 1.2 million Earths inside our sun and still have room for 4.3 million moons to go inside the sun. And that's a small star. The north star that we can see in our sky as a tiny point of light is 400 billion miles away. The star Betelgeuse or Alpha Orion is 880 quadrillion miles away. Quadrillion miles. That's 880 followed by 15 zeros. It is 250 miles in diameter, Alpha Orion. Just that one star is 250 million miles in diameter, which is greater than the Earth's entire orbit. One star. Now consider man. Sir John Eccles Nobel laureate in neurophysiology said in January of 1968 that the odds of the right combination of circumstances evolving by chance into intelligent life such as a human on earth, the odds are 400,000 trillion, 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 trillion to one. I had to read that because I wanted to make sure I got all the trillions in there. right? And then he said he believed that's what happened. By chance, all those odds played out to form humans. And I say, 
That's more faith than I could possibly muster. The Bible teaches us we're not cosmic accidents or statistical coincidences of random chance. We are unique. We are created beings. God created all we see. God did it through Jesus Christ. He did it. That's mind-boggling. Third portrait, then. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The word for radiance means the radiance shining out of a source of light. The source of light is God, God's glory. The word for glory means radiance too. So we have the radiance shining out of God's radiance. Jesus is the radiance shining out of God's radiance. The word for glory can mean splendor. It can mean honor as well. So whatever we think of as the splendor of God shines to us in His Son. That's what he's saying here. In Jesus, we see the magnificence, we see the splendor, we see the majesty, we see the glory of all that God is. He radiates God in all of his glory to us. Now, the Bible teaches that no one can see the essence of God, right? God is not visible. His glory or splendor is what is visible And it is visible to us in Jesus. So to see God, we must see Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. The problem is, most people just don't recognize Jesus when they see him. They don't recognize him as God. When he walked this earth, most people simply ignored him. Did he look like God? Did he radiate Did he walk around, you know, the the old portraits with the the halo or something? You know, did he walk around and everyone, oh, there goes God. No, they ignored him, most of them. They ended up crucifying him, of course. They walked by without recognizing him because his glory was veiled from their eyes. They saw, but they did not see. They heard, but they did not hear the glory of God in Jesus. Well, today... Many simply don't recognize in Jesus the glory of God either. People have all sorts of images of Jesus. He's best buddy. He's he's the revolutionary. He's the one who frees oppressed people. He's the one who loves everybody, makes everybody feel good. He's warm and fuzzy. We have all kinds of images of Jesus, but so often people do not recognize the real Jesus. They ignore him in life. It's easy to do. We can be so caught up with our needs and our plans and our obligations and our problems that we walk right by without recognizing Jesus in anything we do or say. Joshua Bell emerged from the metro in Washington, D.C. and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, Joshua was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw a few dollars into the open case, 
and some pocket change as seed money, picked up the violin and began to play for all of those customers streaming through the DC metro. And for the next 45 minutes on January 12, 2007, Joshua Bell played Mozart and Schubert as, as over a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. Little did they know there were, was a video camera going on as well. And people just walked by. A few people threw a few dollars in there and kept on walking, if they paid any attention at all. If they had looked closely, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist he was, or is. They also might have noted the violin he played, a Stradivarius worth over $3 million in the D.C. metro by the trash can. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100 a pop. Bell garnered about $32 from the 27 people who stopped long enough to give him a donation. They didn't even recognize him. I've walked through the D.C. metro many times. <laughs> There's a stream of humanity, right? Flowing through those halls. We're all intent on what is important, what our plans are, and we ignore our whatever is unimportant, right? So it is with Christ. We, folks, even we Christians, can be so busy with what we consider important that we don't see Jesus in all his glory for who he is in the ordinary activities of our life. He is not supreme. We don't see Jesus because we're not looking for him. Third, fourth portrait, Jesus is the imprint of God's nature. The radiance of God's glory is the imprint of God's nature. Jeremy, Jeremy Bowen, the presenter of a British Broadcasting Corporation documentary on Jesus, stated in that doc documentary, the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't, talking about Jesus. The important thing is what people believe him to have been. A massive worldwide religion numbering more than 2 billion people follows his memory. That's pretty remarkable 2,000 years on. He couldn't be more wrong in that BBC documentary. It is vitally important who he is and what he has done. It's not just a memory. We sang about it because he lives. It is vitally important who he is. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it in verse 3 as he introduces this epistle. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. The Greek word for exact repre representation is the word from which we get our English word character. It was used of a trademark, a distinctive mark, a characteristic trait that identified someone or something. Originally, the word was actually used for a tool for engraving, where they made engravings on stone. But 
just as the image of a coin directly corresponds to the die from which it was cast, so the person of Jesus Christ directly corresponds to the die from which he was cast, which is God's nature. He is the stamp of God in this space-time world. The word for nature is a very, very important theological term. It came to be very critical in the first few centuries of church history as people debated who Jesus was. Was he God? Was he not God? The major debates of, of the early history. The word means the substantial nature, the essence, or the actual being of someone. Jesus Christ then is the stamp, the imprint of the actual being of all that God really and truly is. He is the stamp of God's essence, the imprint of God's very nature in this space-time world. Some years ago, the distinguished publishing house of Grosset and Dunlap brought together a panel of 28 educators and historians, asked them to select the 100 most significant events of human history. What would you pick as the 100 most significant events of human history? Well, they debated and studied and worked months of labor, these educators and historians, and the panel reported that they considered the most significant event of history, this is all human history, the most significant event to be the discovery of America. You know, we Americans are a little self-absorbed here, all right? The discovery of America was the most important event. In second place was the invention of movable type by Gutenberg, Eleven different events tied for third place. They couldn't decide. Eleven different events tied for third. Five events tied for fourth place. The events tying for fourth place, which is really, what, about 20th place at this point, were the following. The development, or the the writing of the constitution of our country, the development of ether, the development of the x-ray, the discovery of the airplane, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth, tied for fourth. Jesus tied for fourth. (laughs) When Jesus entered the world as the very imprint of God's nature, the exact reproduction of all that God is in human form, he's rated fourth on the scale of important events in human history. Clearly, we humans think more highly of ourselves than of God. Fifth portrait. Jesus is the adhesive behind our existence. Not only is Jesus the exact representation of the essence of God, of his nature, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, most often when we read that, we think of a word picture you know, sort of the mythological atlas with his brawny arms holding up the world, right? And that's not really the picture that's being used here, the word picture. The word translated upholds has a dual sense to it. It means to cause something to continue in a state or condition. To cause something to continue in a state or condition. In other words, first there is 
there is the sustaining power of Jesus. He sustains this universe, all things, by simply His Word. All He has to do is speak. And the universal laws that glue this material world together are changed, are altered, are rearranged, just like that, with a Word. Now imagine, if Jesus wanted to alter the law of gravity, for example that might change life a little bit, don't you think? And all he has to do is speak the word. And no gravity. We'd be floating around in here. Just like that. No wonder Jesus then could perform miracles, right? Every miracle by definition is simply the suspension of the normal laws that govern the universe. That's what a miracle is. Jesus simply by word suspends that particular law for a moment. Folks, think about it this way. Every scientific discovery known to man is simply the discovery of how Jesus operates in this world. That's all it is. Because he's the glue that sustains this world. He is the author of all of those laws that govern how, how life exists in the universe. So we talked today about climate change being caused by humans and we're damaging our environment and I'm certain we are certainly damaging our environment but suppose suppose that Jesus just nudged the moon a little bit closer to earth in its orbit. What do you suppose would happen? Well scientists tell us that the extra pull from the moon would cause the oceans to fluctuate so wildly New York City would be inundated with water. And all Jesus has to do is move the moon a little closer to the earth. Wow. Think what God can do to alter life as we know it. Now that is real power. We depend on Jesus as the glue that makes our existence possible. The second sense of this word, though, is also important. The word means to bear or carry along to a conclusion. So Jesus not only glues our material world together, but he carries our history to its conclusion, to his conclusion, actually. He manages all the events of this world system in which we live so that ultimately God's conclusion will be reached. All of the presidents and all of the elections, and all of the wars, and all of the famines, and all of the tsunamis, and all of the choices that leaders make in the halls of all of the governments of this world, and even the circumstances that bring about those decisions are all within the power of the word of Jesus. Kingdoms and nations rise and fall on the word of Jesus. Do you believe that? No, I mean, think about it. Do I really believe that? Do I live tomorrow like that? As if the word of Jesus controls all of those things? Or do I fret and fume and worry about the economy? <laughs> or some famine or some problem, right? The word of Jesus controls all of that. But we don't live that way, do we? We don't really live that way. That is real power. 
So Jesus is the adhesive behind our existence. I love the quote by columnist Andrew Greeley in the Chicago Sun-Times a few years ago. He wrote, if Jesus makes you feel comfortable with your agenda, then he's not Jesus. Once you domesticate Jesus, he isn't there anymore. No, I wouldn't say he isn't there ontologically. Jesus doesn't cease to exist. But if it's our agenda, and we're trying to domesticate Jesus to do what we want him to do, Jesus isn't in that. Why? Because he's Lord. We're not Lord, he is. We want to domesticate Jesus, to make him fit our world, to make him fix. Everybody, want, everybody runs to Jesus, right, when you got a problem. Fix this, God. As soon as the problem's fixed, what do we do? Go on with life the way we used to live it. 911, a few years ago, people were flocking to churches, right? Studies have demonstrated it didn't last. A year later, it was back to normal. Why? We don't really believe Jesus is Lord. Jesus doesn't fit into our world. Our world fits into Jesus' world. That's the way it works. We think that what we do is all important, but only what Jesus does is all important. Sixth portrait, Jesus is the solution for our sins. Now this, of course, is a theme the author of Hebrews will develop throughout the chapters ahead. He says, Jesus made purification of sins. We all sin. Is there anyone here who has never sinned? I don't think so. We all sin. We all mess up. We all blow it. We all make a mess of our lives. And there isn't a sin known to man that any one of us couldn't also do. We are capable of it all because we are sinners. We all know we are impure. We are all dirty. We are unclean before a holy God. There is none righteous, no, not one, the scriptures tell us. We need cleansing. And Jesus cleanses us of our sins. So, folks, as we gather in a room like this on a Sunday morning worship service, we gather not as saints who have earned the right to worship God, right? We're not saints who earned the right to worship God here. We gather as sinners who've been cleansed by the grace of God. That's all we can gather as, every one of us. And for that reason, we have to be careful to guard against any holier-than-thou attitude as we look at others who have sinned. We are no different. Our only hope for any of us is the cleansing, purifying power of Jesus Christ as the ultimate solution for our sins. And after Jesus made purification of sins, we're told in this verse, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After He had made purification for sins. Mrs. Harvey Kidd, in her column, Heart to Heart, tells about her young grandson, Richard. They were on vacation in the Rocky Mountains. And one day, they stopped to admire the beauty of the mountains. And after a few minutes of thoughtful silence, Richard looked up at his grandma and he said, Just think, God did all this with only one hand. She puzzled over that for a moment and then asked him what he meant. Oh, you know, Grandma. He replied, the Bible says Jesus was sitting on the right hand of God. 
So God did it with one hand. He only had one hand to work with. <laughs> well, not quite right, but sort of. God gave Jesus a name, a rank is the point of it, a rank higher than the angels, and he's going to go into that description in, in the next uh, few verses. But he gave him a rank higher than the angels because after his work was done, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. His work was finished, and that's why he could sit down. He can sit down on the throne of the majesty on high because he has accomplished his mission on earth. Now, the opening paragraph of Hebrews 1 is actually all one sentence in the Greek. Run-on sentences were common in Greek. The basic sentence, though, is very simple. The God has talked to us in Son who sat down. That's the whole sentence right there. Then, of course, on the right hand of the majesty and high tells us where. But the basic sentence of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, it's all one sentence. Everything else comes off of this. The God has talked to us in Son who sat down. Why did he sit down? He's done. He's finished. He's alive. His work is accomplished. He's done. So he can sit on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he is today. God talked to us then ultimately in his son, who sat down because his work was finished. He completed the revelation of God to mankind. He is the greatest prophet because he is the fullness of all that God is in this world. And he's our Lord and he's our Savior. And that's who we worship. David Wells, in his book, The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World, raises an important question about life. Why are we here? What is our purpose? If we believe in the supremacy of Christ, then shouldn't Christ be leading us in the decisions of everyday life, if he's truly supreme? We pay lip service to the fact that Jesus is supreme, but what do we do? how do we make decisions this week about the normal affairs of life? And David Wells is a professor. He travels around uh, speaking on colleges camp, college campuses all over the United States. And he says one of the common things that happens to him on the college campuses, the university campuses, is he begins to engage students in a discussion. And most students, he says, go to college with one purpose in mind to start with. What can I get here that will help me enjoy life better? So that's the common refrain of people. What can I get here that will help me enjoy my life better? Make a better life. He says that that's why most college students change majors three times in the course of those four years. They come to college, he said, with major number one. Major number one is the dream major because of the prestige of some uh, prospective position. It's the dream major, the thing they'd love to do that, that, that sounds really great. And so they always go in, you know, they're going to be a nuclear physicist or they're majoring in microbiology. or They've got these grand ideas, right? How do they get to major number two? Well, partway into the process, they, they look at the jobs that are out there, 
and they begin to think about which jobs pay the most, and so they change to that major, because that makes more sense, right? It's more practical. How do they get to major number three, David Wells says? Well, around the second semester of their junior year, they walk in, he says, to a counselor's office, and they say, excuse me, what do I have the most hours in? That sounds like the degree I ought to pursue. Wells says that the major of choice at that point is get out ology. <laughs> you know, just, I got to get out with something. What do I have the most hours in? And then he challenges college students with this question. What would it look like if you grasped, I mean really grasped, the supremacy of Christ as it relates to your very purpose for existing and saw to it that all of your education served to advance Christ's glory, His supremacy, and His cause here on earth. How would that change your choices? And then Professor Wells, in his book, extends the challenge to all of us, because you see, it's not just college students who do this, is it? We all do this. If Christ is supreme... Why did you choose your last job? How are you going to choose your next job if Christ is supreme? Why are you working where you are? How did you choose your current church? Your house? if Christ is truly supreme. That gets pretty practical, doesn't it? You see, how often we live without really paying attention to the supremacy of Christ. Why does he want me where I am, what I'm doing, where I go, what choices I make? Were our choices based on the pursuit of the supremacy of Christ in this world? And then he closes with these challenging words. All things were made through him and for him. That's biblical. That means my life, my family, my ministry, everything that makes up who I am must be characterized by a commitment to the preeminence of Christ. Who's leading you? Who's leading me? Father, it is so easy for us to ignore the supremacy of your Son, Jesus Christ. To come to church and pay lip service to that. But we'd walk right by him if he was in the Washington, D.C. metro. Because we're intent on our stuff. Lord, help us as we make our choices this week, as we live our lives, to live them in the light of the preeminence of you, Lord Jesus. Because it is in you that we gather this morning and that we have life forever. Amen.